Hi, and welcome back to Shout Scratch. You're listening to episode 69, Can You Learn Empathy? This is a podcast brought to you by the VMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we talk about all the things you need to know to be a good doctor, but like you might not necessarily get taught in medical school. I'm Pat, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at Anglia Ruskin University. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by our good friends Lily and Izzy. Lily, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Lily. I am a final year in East London at Barts, and I literally have, I have this week left of medical school organised placement, and then I'm done, it's all just finals and like my elective and stuff. So I'm in a weird... A weird headspace. <laughs> nice to see you guys. Yeah, that's crazy. Because, yeah, you're starting in August, right? Yeah, so we start at the end of August. And then, yeah, I start F1 on the 1st of August, I guess. So it's like the final year is perfectly a year. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in shock. Um, when do you finish, yeah. Izzy? So, yeah, I'm, I'm also a final year. I'm at Nottingham. Um, I have another four weeks of organised placement. Then my exams are... March and April, and then I have elective TTP, which is like our transition to placement to practice um, module, and then yeah, um, doctoring life if if I pass my finals, um, um, which you will of course. So <laughs> I mean, mine's not dissimilar. I, I started my final year though in at the beginning of July, so I'm feeling a bit hard done by it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's just been going on so long. Yeah, I think Barts might have a short year because technically of organised teaching, it's August to now, like February, March. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just exams and elective and a huge gap, which in theory should go on a holiday, but due to the rising heating costs, I can't afford it. <laughs> I just turn off the heating. I, I, I can't afford heating. I just have like, like blankets on. Well, yeah, always nice to have you guys back. And I'm also excited to introduce our expert guest today, Dr. David Jeffrey. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm David. I'm a retired palliative care doctor and former uh, academic mentor at Dundee Medical School involved in student support. And when I finished that job, I went and um, did a PhD uh, exploring empathy in medical students, and that finished in 2018. Yeah, I actually am just halfway through the book that you wrote um, based on your thesis and, you know, I'm very intrigued by some of the points in there. So, yeah, very looking forward to our uh, conversation today. So, empathy is ingrained into the brains of medical students from the very beginning. It's the cornerstone in medical school interviews. You know, there will always be an MMI station or panel question asking you to provide an example in showing empathy or explaining the difference between empathy and sympathy. Uh, So I thought in this episode we could uh, delve a little bit deeper into the phenomenon of empathy. You know, does our empathy increase or decrease over the course of our training? Anything that may act as a barrier to empathy and what may enhance one's empathy? Um, I know the definition of empathy is drilled into most medics' minds, but I guess just a quick reminder of what empathy is. Um, It could be encapsulated as standing in the person's shoes and understanding things from their position. So Lydia and Izzy, as you both mentioned earlier, you're both final year medical students. And mm-hmm. I suppose, like, just reflecting on your medical school career, do you think you've noticed any differences in, I suppose, the empathy that you express? I don't know. I mean, I remember one of my first lectures, the dean of our medical school said, we always find that by fifth year, they, the students have less empathy than they did when they were first year. Mm. And I remember thinking, that's a bit strange. I won't do that. And... I mean, comparing back to my first year, 
I mean, I don't think I see much difference. I hope I don't see much difference. But I wonder if you did it on like a scale, like did a like validated method of screening of working out actually the actual levels of empathy, whether they would have changed. Because I think I view a lot of things with a very different perspective now than I did back in the day. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I think of it less as putting myself into someone else's shoes, I think. And I think of I think of it more as a understanding someone else's perspective, uh, but not saying, oh, I know how that feels. It's I can understand how that might feel because otherwise there's a danger, I guess, of taking it away from the patient and putting it onto yourself, which I think is probably something that I've noticed a lot more, especially after my psychiatry placement. The language you used there was really important. So that's just like a five years of empathy in five, <laughs> in a minute. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I find this question so difficult. I I was listening to your lecture um, about empathy, uh, I think about your PhD when you did it at Dundee. And I listened to it while I ran this morning. Um, and you said something about how you noticed that the clinical students finished the degree feeling more empathetic. And I don't know if I feel that way. I think, yeah, with some patients, I think I now I have more of a kind of long, longer experience now with medicine. I definitely feel kind of a stronger sense of understanding what's going on for them and being able to really kind of delve into their life story. So in that case, I do have moments, especially in A&E, which is my placement at the moment, where I feel real connection that I don't think I could have felt in first year. However, I'm, me and my friends talking about this maybe last year about how a patient coming with abdominal pain in first year, my initial perspective would have been like, oh gosh, that's awful. I wonder what it is. Whereas now it's okay. That's most likely not that awful. Let's hope it's, let's rule out the bad things and it probably won't be bad. So there's kind of a, I kind of come from a slightly different perspective now, which I try to kind of fight. I don't want to be assuming patients are um, I don't want to assume patients pain is disproportionate to the pathology but I wonder Mm. if medicine kind of teaches you to expect that so they're the two kind of opposing people in my brain Mm. yeah definitely and um yeah I guess David you mentioned that you did a PhD on empathy medical students um yeah what were your findings in terms of do medical students um empathy decline um throughout the training or do they just kind of stay the same or fluctuate well i think it's it's a it's a it's a difficult thing i think one of the problems that i struggle with is that um you were mentioning before about uh, empathy scales and measuring empathy um i think empathy is such a complex uh, construct or experience that it's kind of artificial to measure it. Uh, you know, what are you actually measuring when you try and have a scale? Exactly. Uh, you, you might be empathetic one day, you might be moving house and not feel empathetic the next day, you're the same person. So I, I the main sort of change that I saw with students was at the beginning, they were kind of um, fixated with uh, either you were, you know, I am empathetic or I'm not empathetic. But by the end, by the time they were doing their um, final years, they could see empathy more as a relational thing between two people. This was something between two individuals. It was a relational construct. It was something that um, 
It wasn't something I had or you hadn't. It would depended too. It depends on really whether does the patient want you to be empathetic? You know, will the patient does they want do they want to disclose this stuff to you? Do they want to share feelings? So uh, measure. I have problems with the measuring of scales, and most of the work done on empathy has been on. Uh, a thing called the Jefferson Physician Empathy Scale. Um, and there have been hundreds of studies of measuring that. And that does show a dip in empathy. But certainly my, my study, just as uh, you both have been saying today, um, you felt empathetic all the way along. Certainly some students identified barriers that made them hide their empathy. They still felt they wanted to connect with patients but their work environment kind of stopped them doing it. Mm. And that's why I don't know I if that's your experience. Yeah. That's why I struggle to put it into words so much. Like I was saying scales of yeah. empathy because I didn't, it's so, so qualitative mm. as opposed yes. to quantitative. Like, can you measure yeah. it on a Yeah, as you said, how do you measure empathy? And also um, your empathy or just emotions could change, fluctuate every day, mm. right? Depending what you're experiencing on the day. And I suppose... When it comes to like measuring empathy, how can you tell when you're losing empathy? How do you know when, oh God, um, I think I'm being more cold every day? Like, how can I identify that, okay, I'm losing empathy and I need to do something to, like, to change this now? I find that I'm less empathetic in OSCEs because I'm time pressured. I just have to get to the point, snap, snap, snap. And that really isn't great because you need to show communication skills in OSCEs. But because... I have like an agenda of my own Mm. that I need to get through. I need to do this task, this task, this task in 10 minutes and do it well. I sometimes, you know, you need to remember that the patient also has their own agenda, which Mm. in order to realise, you kind of have to be empathetic um, because a lot of it, we, they drill into us, you know, ideas, concerns and expectations, which is, you know, the pinnacle of, you know, (laughs) trying to get to the, bottom of what the patient actually wants from the consultation Mm. and you're not going to understand the patient enough I don't think if you don't actually explore that with them and sometimes I find that when I'm in a rush with these OSCEs or if for instance I know that my own GP is in a rush I can notice it myself like when I'm the patient I can spot it because instead of like open questions, it's closed questions. Um, just trying to get to the bottom of a point as opposed, like the medical side of it, as opposed to, you know, the bio, whole biopsychosocial. I can put it into both, see both perspectives from there. And ideally, by the time my OSCE's come in a month and a bit, I'll have worked this one out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think David made a good point that the context in which you come from will make a massive difference. So if you're moving house or you're going through a life event and things are stressful anyway, you go into work or you go into placement and it is just a bit harder to kind of grab that sense of deep understanding with a patient. You don't really have the emotional resources to do that. And then on the flip side, when you wake up and you have an incredible day, you're having an amazing week and the sun is shining and you stroll into work, you feel like the most empathetic person in the world. You feel like Mother Teresa, like you feel like you could <laughs> solve everyone's problems. And I wonder if trying to find a way to be baseline empathetic, even if you're having a bad day, I think that's kind of the, the kind of life's work of a doctor, I wonder. 
Yeah, like on yeah, going on to the point about the baseline of empathy. Do you think, like, do you think most medical students come in with like a certain level of empathy? And do you think throughout medical school, do you think we get like be given you know different skill set or tools to enhance that empathy? Well, I think as David said, it's it is relational. It's a thing that you do, and in some cases, you perform. Um, being a bit more cynical, um, so I think. It's hard to kind of say that a person is or isn't empathetic, and then one. I don't. It's hard. Like I mean, as we've kind of all now expressed, it's a really hard concept to measure and grasp, and kind of have a concrete idea of whether it increases or decreases. Um, and I wonder if we actually posed it as David does, as something which you can learn and practice and co-construct with patients. That becomes more doable and more feasible. Whereas I think lots of medical students have this idea that if they are not inherently empathetic, whatever that means, they're never going to be that. There's no point. I'm going to be a surgeon instead. I'm not good with people. They kind of forget the concept as a whole, which I think is a failing of medical school, although it's actually medical school trying to encourage empathy. They kind of almost discourage it in people who it doesn't come naturally to them. And if we kind of, Mm. I wonder if expressed it as a, like a practice, I wonder if we'd be better able is teaching to teach uh, students how to do it just as a side note i'm sure there are some lovely empathetic surgeons out there (laughs) but i think i'd agree with that it can be taught learned i think you probably do have to have a baseline level to be able to learn it maybe i don't know david correct me if i'm wrong but i'd say that you know the fact that all the medical schools are jumping towards mmi style of interview is because you can get role plays in there and you can see how someone interacts with a situation that they don't expect or know how to deal with. And so whilst they're thinking about how do I solve this problem, which has been faced with me because, you know, role plays can come in all weird and wonderful varieties. I think to be able to have this baseline level of empathy that you don't have to really think about is a key, I guess, attribute of successful inter- interview candidate. But and, I think I think everyone has yeah. the capacity. I don't think it is something that I don't know. Like I I really do believe that everyone has the capacity to be empathetic, and I think interviews have a get a snapshot. So you're right. The people who are the best at uh, practicing performing. or performing or doing empathy, whether that's real or not, they will get the they'll get the offer for the medical school place. Yes, but I don't think that means the people who get rejected don't have the capacity. They just haven't been given the tools and the space and the encouragement. Well, I think one of the things that was interesting, I think that um, Izzy was talking about OSCEs and certainly the students I spoke to um, in my study all felt that OSCEs were an act. I mean, you're often with a, um, a simulated patient who's acting and you under pressure of time are acting as well. So with this kind of sort of fake empathy of you know nodding forward and saying the right things and holding the hand and so on and and this wasn't real empathy at all and the other pressure that was on was assessment because the students I spoke to felt very strongly that as soon as they felt they were being assessed their empathy went out the window they they started to think am I doing the right thing am Mm -hmm. I doing this and that how do I get these marks so Kind of if you've engendered in your medical school a competitive, uh, stressful sort of culture, that isn't going to work to help people's empathy. 
And I think the thing that does help that you've both alluded to really, and, and I think um, particularly Lily was saying there is that what students I found really valued was having the chance to be with the patient, see them perhaps reflect afterwards with an experienced clinician without being assessed. You know, talk to someone who wasn't saying going to give you a mark out of it or or humiliate you afterwards, but to try and encourage you and so on. I think that's one of the most powerful ways of increasing uh, your your empathy, um, particularly in areas of emotional regu regulation, particularly when it comes down to sharing emotions with patients. They found that if they could talk to someone else afterwards, they found that very, very helpful. I think I actually really struggle to remember the OSCEs, that they're, patient, that they're actors. I think I'm, like, I'm just trying to think of myself in my OSCEs and I think of the, probably from last year's easiest memories. And I actually, I think I think of them as real, as real patients and I kind of forget that they're acting. So I wonder if that kind of, that I, I, and I do, my OSCEs are by far my best exam. I wonder if that kind of helps me. Mm. Um, I kind of lose the connection between fake and real. I don't know. Mm. I'm the opposite. Oski's my worst exam because I get overwhelmed with this. This is assessed. This is not a normal clinical environment. I'm not comfortable here. And it reflects, I think. Um, so I'm looking forward to that coming up. No, I, I, think, I think that's a really common experience. Yeah. I really, and I get really nervous and I definitely don't, mm. I don't think I perform exams as well. Um, but I think that's a really common experience. Is you think Oski's are a bit mm. arguable. I think also this kind of idea of forced empathy whether or not it is actually forced could like reflect into you know practice as a doctor mm. when we're older or in your career David where you find people who um you know have lived experience of a condition um and this whole debate around lived experience you know is it valuable to have a lived experience as a doctor does it make your practice better and I'd say well you can you you definitely be able to be able to have more empathy but not everyone actually uses it as empathy and sometimes it turns into this is about me i understand where it's coming from and it adds a different dimension certainly to your practice which can or cannot be beneficial but when i'd say you base your practice around the fact you have lived experience is that empathy or is that making you just giving yourself a unique selling point a usp and turning it actually um into more of a force thing because you feel like you have to keep up pretenses i don't know if you've thought about cases like that david or if it's just medical students but i think in the near future that's something that's going to become very evident as more and more people you know begin to open up in the medical world about health conditions and things yeah, I think that's a very a very subtle point, and I think the key thing the key thing with that clearly, if you've experienced um, illness yourself, you will have insights into it. And and one of the challenges when starting out in medicine is that is that we don't have that lived experience. There's a lot of situations that we're not aware of, and we have to, in empathy, have the imagination to see and to imagine what it's like for someone else. But the key thing you're saying is, I think that the, the hallmark of empathy is that you're 
attention is other directed. It's directed at the other person. You're interested in the other person's perspective and it's not Mm -hmm. self-directed. So that if you are, uh, if you're retaining a self-directed view about your own illness and stuff like this, you could end up burdening the patient with your story of of your own illness so that you're quite right with that they have to be careful but the key is that your your perspectives are interested in the other person it's not it's not about me it's about you how do you feel because in empathy you're trying to see it from their point of view not how I would feel in their situation because that leads to distress and burnout you what you've got to try and do achieve is uh, having the imagination to see What's it like for this person? And and clearly that that can be very difficult. In you know, the students identified many different types of patients. Particularly, you mentioned their mental health patients, uh, obese patients, alcoholics, uh, a whole groups of people who they found it quite difficult to empathise with. And I think this is a place where the humanities can help a lot. I think within in reading, drama and so on, that you can get insights from other things that can inform your imagination. David, what a bit of your um, work found that students found a barrier to empathy was kind of um, time and feeling like to be a good, efficient clinician, you can't really be too empathetic. Um, and I found that point so resonant. Um, I once had a doctor say to me a couple of years ago, an amazing doctor, and he said, um, notice how the patient makes you feel because that will make you a better doctor. And I thought that was just such a great kind of argument against people who would argue that you can't be empathetic and be a good, efficient doctor. Um, in that actually, if you can be aware of your own emotions, which requires you to also be listening to the patient properly and notice how they make you feel, do they make you feel worried and sad and actually a bit alarmed and actually that's a really good indicator of how unwell they are and that therefore will make you a better clinician because you have got to the point quicker um so i i understand how they feel that and i would feel the same but i think that's a actually like you say it's a bit of a fallacy yeah i think time i mean this there's a there's a huge problem between uh empathy and efficiency if you like but in fact, if you do spend that time, I think if you find that if you spend that time with patients, it's a tremendous investment, particularly the first assessment. If it's that first crucial meeting with someone, you just get that instinctive thing. Can I get on with this person? Will I disclose stuff? And if you invest that time in the first place, then people will accept that maybe at other occasions you are rushed and you've got to be a bit shorter, but they know that you're the sort of doctor who will sit and listen to them. Mm. Of course, if you don't spend the time um, and you maintain what, what's called professional detached concern, in other words, you just stick to the cognitive stuff and don't go into emotions, uh, you will never see that world. So there are some doctors who would never be aware of some of the aspects of suffering and existential distress that patients have because they never explore that what do you think of um doctors who can perform empathy so well that it actually is patients do respond really well to those doctors because they definitely exist where the patients can't tell that that doctor doesn't actually feel empathetic maybe it's not that common patients are actually intuitive but there definitely are doctors like that would you say that's kind of 
I don't know what you. What would you think about that? <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I think it's got. I mean, it's a difference which some people have aligned this to um, surface acting and deep acting, and that surface acting is where you don't feel the emotions or even a taste of the emotions of the patient. I'm not suggesting you feel all the suffering of a patient, but you kind of get a sample of it. But but in surface acting, you're not doing that. You're you're doing as you're behaving as you are doing in a. In a in an acting sort of way and then there's deep acting in which actors actually feel the emotions and I I would disagree I think patients are highly sensitive to when a doctor cares about them or not and as to whether they're being authentic or not and not just doctors I think you know outside when you meet people uh, you can tell whether someone's interested and they're going to help you and want to do something and that you matter to them you know, whether it's in the supermarket or the bank or anywhere, you can just look at people and, and get a sense of whether they're going to connect with you. So I, I, I'm not sure that uh, faking it is actually going to fool many patients. I think they're very, very quickly onto that. I think yeah. also this whole era of COVID medicine where a lot of yes. things are over the telephone, a massive part of, you know, one of the first things we were taught in medical school was nonverbal communication. Yeah. Telephone mm. appointments take all of that out. So mm. I was saying that sometimes I feel, oh, I like, oh, that, that doctor was a bit, you know, cur- a bit a bit rushed or seemed a bit harsh. Mm. I wonder if, I had, if I'd had exactly the same conversation with them face to face over a video I would have had that same feeling because you can't tell if they're looking at the computer the whole time or if they're sitting there open, you know, in that three for tea like um, position, which just makes you think, actually, what, you know, what is this pandemic doing to people's empathy? What actually effect will it have on medical students coming through who have all these different experiences? For instance, my... I'd had two GP placements, one in October 2020 and one in October 2021. Mm. I definitely saw about, in the first one, about 90% of the telephone, of the consultations were telephone. This one may be about 60%, the most recent one. Mm. But it still means that I've got a very different experience with general practice to someone who trained five years before me and will have seen... Yeah hundreds of patients probably across the eight weeks um I'd probably I could probably say I'd probably seen about 25 in GP which Mm. is just so different I think that's a great point Izzy I definitely found on my recent GP placement probably 70% were on the phone um my one thing is that although it's harder it's definitely harder it's also definitely not impossible and there is absolutely a Mm. way to have an empathetic telephone conversation but kind of as you say it is harder and it requires the clinician to really think about what their tone of voice is implying and pauses and what questions do you ask and how much time you give them I think I mean I'm sure you'd agree it is possible it's just harder and I think I got better as I went and actually towards the end I could really Mm. I really could connect with a patient over the phone, having never seen their face, they've never seen mine, no body language at all, but I could get that connection. Was at the beginning, I found that 
harder. Well, we'll discuss a little bit more about empathy in medical students, but that'll be right after this message from our sponsor. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, every week one lucky new joiner wins £183. That's the average student weekly spend. Just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. Okay, back to the show. So, what are some barriers to empathy uh, in our working environment? I think I was very interested there to hear Lily's comments about um, uh, learning how to empathise over the telephone, because uh, in a previous life I was a GP before I specialised in palliative medicine. And, <laughs> You've done everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got booted out of everything, don't I? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's um, the, the. I found um, I was GP for something like twenty years. I found telephone conversations one of the hardest things um, to do with patients, and that it's only when you really knew patients well that I felt confident with dealing things over the phone. That I really needed to see people, and. It was just interesting that you could develop this um, experience, Lily, with using the phone. And it's interesting, too, that patients want um, patients want face-to-face consultations in spite of these telephone ones. I think returning to your question about the, the workplace barriers, I think the whole culture of the dominance of the biomedical model in medicine that we're we're focused on um, the the biomedical bits of, of the patient, the symptoms and the treatment and so on, um, to the neglect of the psychosocial. That whole cultural thing in the background is that uh, that mitigates against empathising because I certainly know students felt that on ward rounds and things, they felt under pressure to give the biomedical details of the patient and that... Um, the consultants weren't particularly interested to know much about any of the psychosocial stuff. So that was was one huge barrier, I think, to, to, to empathising. The whole culture was kind of slightly against it. But that this was the place I was looking at. It was a very scientific medical school that I, I did my study in. I think a barrier... I don't know if that's your experience. Well, I think a barrier for me, which I think I'd actually love to read some research about, is the idea of a worthy patient and kind of the patients that we see as more deserving of empathy and time and those that we don't. And obviously there are huge, gosh, huge political and philosophical impacts on who we think is worthy, which I don't need to go into today. Um, But even like a tiny example of like um, we had, we did an ortho ward round when I was on Jerry's. 
Um, and the little old lady who never complains, that's the patient that you listen to, you give more painkillers to, because she was an, an easy patient in inverted commas. She was, didn't make you feel um, kind of pressured and... So uh, it's, I think it's, just, it's so it's sad, but it does the, the patients that complain the most or the patients that are the most complicated, they're often the patients that I think I notice, especially in hospital, healthcare professionals are less likely or they're more reluctant to give them that time which is required to be empathetic. Um, for me, that's a really big kind of a, it's like an emotional barrier, I guess. It's not even anything to do with time. Yeah, I think if we just butt in there, I think that part of being empathetic is to strive to be non-judgmental you know and it and as you say it is it is sometimes very difficult one other way that people have approached it in the past that sometimes some of these patients that you're describing lily were called heart sink patients you know people who came with multiple diffuse um, symptoms which didn't really sort of fit in with anything that you knew that sometimes sitting and discussing that with colleagues in a in a in a quiet way and reflecting on why does that why does that make us feel uncomfortable? What's going on in the sort of balance group type thing? That can be very helpful in sorting that out. And I think always sharing it with other people. I think uh, it's one of the things in palliative medicine. We always worked as a team and we always discussed things and shared difficult problems. And, and that made it made those, those sort of situations a little bit easier. And people would have suggestions. We had a psychologist on our team. And he would sometimes sit down, obviously he saw patients, but he'd sometimes sit down with us and suggest ways in which we might for, move forward in a consultation when we got stuck, as you were saying, Lily. I think that's a really great solution. I don't think in my, in my professional life I have ever seen a doctor discuss with other doctors or other healthcare professionals about their own reaction to a patient and why is it that it makes it yeah why are they complicated why are we reluctant to treat this patient or maybe reluctant to investigate things um i only ever seen really very concrete dilemmas like oh this patient smokes they need oxygen let's get people involved to figure that out never have i seen actually we don't know what the issue is can we explore it i've never seen that done but i'd love to see that done the concept of an mdt isn't it yeah but mdts i mean the only ones i've ever watched are ones with concrete like yes they might be complicated patients but they're complex uh like physiologically or like biologically maybe even complex social problems but we still they're still kind of graspable aren't they i've never seen someone actually say I don't know what it is about this patient that is making this difficult. People don't want to admit that. It's interesting, there was a, there's a French philosopher, Ricoeur, who actually looked at this and he said, we've got to try and move away from the idea of the competent doctor and the uh, vulnerable patient mm. and accept that both parties are vulnerable you know we, oh, yeah. we all have we're all vulnerable and sometimes the more senior you are the more lonely and vulnerable you can feel you know um, so some of these guys in the, the very tops of things are actually very lonely people too and you need to remember that I think that's why because if you are going to engage in the emotional side of patients and and feel some of their suffering You've just got to have someone that you can share that with and, and unload to. You can't do it. I mean, all other specialties that involved with that, like social services or counselling or, or nursing even, 
they all have nominated supervisors that they can talk. I mean, supervisor sounds an awful word, but they, they all have people that they can go and reflect with. Um, so I think the things you were saying are very pertinent with that. Yeah, And I think the things you were saying, Lily, about having a supportive team and colleagues you can go to in the firm is, is vital. It doesn't have to be a name tutor. It can, it can be a, an informal thing. But you need to identify these people. Like seeing your first death, we always encourage you need to talk it out. You need to express, explore it with others. Yeah. I didn't do that. And that's something I regret because I thought, oh, I don't, I don't need to. I'm fine. And I was fine. And then I wasn't. <laughs> and it's like, it's because, yeah. you know, dying, is that something you can empathise with? I don't, that's maybe an exception. I don't know. <laughs> so I used to work as a, a carer in my holidays, like um, a nursing care assistant in a care home. And I think how they treated death was so much more reflective of kind of who we need to be as people. So what happened on the first time I saw one of our residents, I didn't see them die, but then be dead. Um, the like ritual is that every carer who has worked with that resident takes turns and they go in either alone or with someone else and they get like a bit of time to most people actually talk to the person which is kind of interesting um and they might like stroke their hair or kind of it's quite interesting and then afterwards in the handover we all like talk about that person who's died and we reflect on how it made, made us feel and usually there's carers who are really affected um and then that enables us so it's only about like half an hour and then we can then do the rest of our shift and we're still really good carers who are really clinically competent but actually we can then do that job better and kinder and happier and that's just so vastly different to how it's treated in medicine i wonder if we just took half an hour when someone dies to kind of talk about it and let people kind of grieve in their own way i don't know i think that would because really the empathy there is then for the family. That's like a really important aspect of death. I think we'd be better able to do that if we had ourselves reflected on the death already. And I think the ambulance service are one that are notoriously good for that. Because, you know, when you watch documentaries about, you know, paramedics and, you know, they show like, obviously the extremes of their job. I, I, you know, not every day is going to be like that. They show They show the highlights. But they do usually come back to this point where they say, you know, there's been a, maybe a a road traffic collision with multiple victims. And, you know, some of the staff are told, you, you need to come to this meeting later so we can talk through it. Mm. And that's something that I've seen in multiple trusts have that from when I've been watching this these series and things. And so it's not impossible. Yeah, I agree. Uh, having a hot debrief is so important and like, I really like the example that you've given um, Lily with the I guess just having a closure and um, with that person that you've cared for um, I guess that when I've been um, shadowing doctors when you go and certify a death sometimes you don't even know the patient or um, yeah or, or sometimes um, you just don't have the time to have that half an hour or something to really summarize and collect your thoughts yeah uh, I suppose that people will actually leave work at work, right? You don't want to bring all the emotions back home with you. Otherwise, that would be too much. And yeah, that might lead to burnout, as you mentioned, David. I think one of the things that's important is that from from medical educators' point of view, that it's really important that when, uh, as clinicians, we're having difficult conversations with families or dying patients, that 
with the patient's permission, you have students alongside you so that they see and they can involve and then discuss these things afterwards as well. Uh, so I think quite often there's a there's a tends to be uh, situations where, oh, I'm going to have this very difficult com conversation with someone who's requesting euthanasia. I'll just do it myself rather than actually think, well, this would be really useful for this student to come alongside and, and be with me with this, you know. Uh, so I think there is that. But I think your, your points that, that Lily was making, it's so vital to have a chance to talk about it, things. And students, some of the students I talked to were so distressed when patients died and they hadn't had any chance to talk about it. Even when they went back and asked about it, kind of they were told to sort of man up, come on, this is medicine, you know, we don't do this. I mean, one, one student descri <laughs> described, it's unbelievable, this described a cupboard in the ward that people went into to cry so that no one would see them cry. I mean, I found that as absolutely incredible, you know. It's amazing what we do to each other as doctors and students, isn't it? I remember one thing you said again, David, in that lecture I watched was about how you noticed that, or either you noticed or someone had noticed that doctors who uh, employ more empathy and give time to their patients more, they, um, they, their job is more rewarding, they have higher job satisfaction and they have less mm. burnout. So to kind of address mm. Pat's point about we worry that if we empathise too much and take all those things home, we're going to burn out. And yes, there is a balance between those things, but I wonder if actually the cure, the, the, like the healing salve of burnout might actually be kind of empathy. Yeah, I, th I think I mean, it's clear that there's a study by someone called Jackson on oncologists. They looked at people who were uh, um, a group of oncologists who really stuck to the chemotherapy regimes, discussions and so on, and another group who went in to talk about uh, impending death and dying and went into the issues with the patients. And the group that connected emotionally had much less burnout and stress and much more measured job satisfaction than the group that kept that detached concern. So as long as come back, as long as you've got some support, then I think that this um, I don't know, it's a sort of myth that I don't know where it comes from, this idea that to connect emotionally with patients is a bad thing. I don't know where that's arisen from, but certainly using detached concern and detaching from patients is not a good coping mechanism. You end up with more burnout and lack of job satisfaction. I think that's a really good note to end on. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, and that's all we have time for today. Um, if you would like to hear more other episodes, please subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts. And in two weeks' time, you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch. I'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students to find a show. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye. And just before you click pause on this podcast, we've got an exciting opportunity for our listeners. As our lovely panel graduate and become junior doctors in a few months' time, we're looking for new med students to come join the panel. If you're a regular listener of Sharp Scratch and interested in being featured on a podcast, you can fill in the short application form, which you can find a link for in the show notes. 
In the past, the panel has consisted of med students studying in the UK, but recording remotely meant that we can extend this opportunity to med students studying abroad too. So please apply if you're interested, and we look forward to receiving your applications.